Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research. And we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the AMPT podcast. My name is Danu J. Asilin, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Kenneth Olson. Dr. Olson is board certified in orthopedics and fellowship trained in orthopedic manual physical therapy. He received his bachelor's in physical therapy from Northern Illinois University, his master's in physical therapy and doctorate in health sciences from the University of St. Augustine, where he also did his fellowship. And among his many publications, he's the author of the textbook Manual Physical Therapy of the Spine. The third edition is coming out early in 2022, so he literally wrote the textbook on this stuff. Uh, he's served as the past president of AOMPT and IFOMPT and remains actively engaged in both, and he also maintains clinical practice at Northern Rehab in Illinois. Today, we'll be discussing Dr. Olson's AOMPT conference presentation titled Lumbopelvic Thrust Manipulation, Does the Technique Matter? The discussion was co-presented with Drs. Paul Lahneman and Steve McDavid. Dr. Olson, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. You know, you've been engaged in manual therapy in a lot of different ways, a lot of variety of roles for a long period of time. I'm interested to always know about the authors and presenters' motivation to kind of put their work forward. So can you kind of speak to why you chose to present this topic to the AMPS conference? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think the, the process of revising the textbook or writing the textbook, you know, essentially you have to go through this process of trying to reconcile how you practice or how you were trained to practice on a day-to-day basis versus what the evidence is showing. And so as the evidence has come out supporting a, a more general approach and being less specific and doing manual therapy, both in terms of examination and doing the manipulations, it sort of conflicts with how I like to practice, which is to be very specific and how I was trained to practice. So so that was part of the motivation. And then also just seeing how others have reconciled those differences and maybe throwing out have thrown out some aspects of the exam and advocated being less specific and, and maybe even teaching their students uh, to be less specific. I think it's had uh, an effect of kind of watering down our specialty area in such a way that it's now devalued in, uh, in some circles. So, So to me, that's kind of a disturbing trend and I just want to see the pendulum swing back the other way uh, in terms of understanding the importance of, of being more specific with how we examine our patients and how we come to our clinical decisions and, and, and how we go about performing manipulation. It could also be said that where you learned or who taught you is kind of guiding the type of technique you would be doing, or if you're doing manual therapy at all. And as you mentioned, there's a, maybe a swing towards being less specific there's actually a lot of people that don't prefer to do manual therapy at all. Um, obviously, the recent low back pain uh, CPG that came out supporting manual therapy for people with back pain kind of caused an uproar. I wonder, what do you think is this cause of the divide? Why do you think there's such a an argument about why manual therapy should be used or maybe why it should not be used? You know, some of this seems to be... Um an outgrowth of social media and, you know, certain individuals trying to kind of make a name for themselves by being super provocative or certain, you know, trying to create controversy. 
which to me is kind of a disturbing trend. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, we really need to look at what's best for the patient and what's best for the patient is, uh, and, and to try to understand what the patient's expectations are. So if the patient has the expectation that manual therapy and manipulation is going to help and we can provide that intervention, we're going to, you know, ultimately have the best outcomes with that. And we also have to understand as physical therapists, we have our own biases uh, and there is some evidence that uh, the therapist bias is going to play into, you know, whether manipulation or mobilization is going to be more effective or manual therapy at all. And so I think the therapist needs to kind of recognize where your biases are. And, and, you know, I think it's okay to kind of own that and then, you know, move forward. And that's maybe what you're most comfortable with, what you're most effective with and probably where you will get the best outcomes. But, you know, kind of in the end, you know, it, what's really important is that we kind of take the best of, of everything and try to integrate it into a comprehensive approach to our patients to, you know, provide good, good education, um, specific exercises for our patients, and, and certainly integrate manual therapy and, and manipulation techniques because there is strong evidence to support their effectiveness. When you speak to the effectiveness of manual therapy, or in this case, manipulation specifically, you know, most people come to lumbar manipulation, lumbopelvic manipulations in trying to reduce pain or trying to improve mobility. If we're using pain as a, as a marker, we can obviously just ask, does it feel better or worse the same pre or post the, the manipulation? To assess stiffness, we typically will do some sort of passive assessment oftentimes looking at accessory motion at the joint. So maybe some pavums or uh, pivums. And those are passive assessments, which depending on the article you look at, some of them have actually some pretty questionable metrics. I'm wondering, how do you kind of reconcile the, the possible usefulness of pavums, knowing that there might not be as strong diagnostic utility in their use when we're thinking about the selection of manipulation or not? So it's a, that's a really good question. And it's something that I have put a lot of thought into. So certainly the reliability and validity of passive accessory intervertebral motion tests and passive intervertebral motion tests is not what we would hope that it would be as a standalone examination procedure. But to me, it's, it's not so bad that we should totally throw it away. I think there still is, is a great deal of merit in these procedures. Well, first of all, if there's a pain provocation component to it, it does help to increase the reliability. So doing like the PAs, for instance, and trying to reproduce the patient's pain with that still has a tremendous amount of value to try to connect with the patient as to where their symptoms are and whether or not this is a mechanical cause to their, their back pain. And also, when you do a PA, it is a reproducible kind of force that you're producing, as, as Kulig showed with the dynamic MRIs, that you know when you put pressure in the same location, you're going to get the same result, even though it's across the lumbar spine, but most of the motion is going to occur at that targeted segment. And so, so to me, that provides some validity and um, to, to use of those types of techniques. Now, the passive intervertebral motion tests, where we're doing things like you know, flexing the hip the pel and trying to palpate the movement. Generally, the reliability and validity on those is not as good. But on the other hand, those are techniques that can help through a training process in, in our educational systems to help students gain the, the handling skills that they need in order to perform manipulation in an effective manner. And if you, if, the, if you do a more general technique and it doesn't really work, 
how without having those manual therapy handling skills, how can you modify the technique then to make it more effective, to change the focus, the targeted focus of, of the technique? So for all those reasons, I, I still feel like this is a important component of what we do as manual therapists and as physical therapists in our examination. And also these are the building blocks to provide good manual therapy and manipulation uh, technique interventions. I guess the other point I'd like to make is that these are also, they're not standalone examination procedures. These are things that are always clustered with other findings in terms of what the patient's telling us, in terms of their symptom behavior, and also what we're seeing with how they move actively and, and how the active movements provoke their symptoms. So I'm probably going to weigh those things more heavily. And then maybe the next in terms of weighting would be the pain provocation. And then further down the line would be what I feel with the passive intervertebral motion test. So you kind of, so then you end up with a cluster and really, I think doing more research on, on what are those effective clusters that help with our clinical reason is really a direction I'd like to see an effort go into. Yeah. And I would completely echo that. And, you know, when I'm teaching, there's never really one test that I've found, and I've looked at a lot of different tests that by itself, you can arguably say that you're confident something is present or not. You know, even the Ottawa ankle rules, which have great sensitivity or Ottawa knee rules, those are clustered tests. And so anytime we use one single test, we we need to be knowing maybe what its benefits are, but also its drawbacks. But when we think that somebody is stiff, uh, we might be able to feel that. And um, when we can couple up that stiffness to, oh, it also hurts when we do that, we can more reliably say that, you know, if I treat this area, it's probably going to help. So when we think about the treatment specifically as it relates to manipulation or not, you know, you, in your presentation, you, you cited and talked about the the Cleanland study from 2009 in spine, uh, which suggested that individuals who receive a, a manipulation regardless of if it's the sideline technique or the supine technique, those manipulations tended to outperform uh, non-thrust manipulations or mobilizations, suggesting that to me, regardless of the type of technique or the position of the technique, as long as you did the manip, that person would probably outperform someone that didn't get the manip. Since that time, I I think there's been a number of different studies, kind of whether it's in the low back or the neck or both, to kind of suggest that mobilization might actually be on par, provide the same results or similar results as uh, manipulation. And so if there's maybe equivalent evidence supporting one type of technique versus another, in your head, what are your thought processes that kind of lead you into manipulation versus mobilization? So, yes, um, there is evidence you know, to support both non-thrust and thrust techniques. And and I think um, there's some preliminary evidence that factors such as patient expectations could very well factor into that. Um, you know, if they expect, you know, to kind of, you know, be manipulated or have, have a thrust technique performed and you can provide that, do it skillfully, that may impact the outcomes. And also the, the therapist, you know, bias towards the effectiveness of one technique or another and how you present it to the patient, all of those factors that all those contextual things around uh, the interaction with the patient can, can certainly have some impact on, on the outcome. Um, but really, you know, what I'm looking for is in order to, you know, kind of that question of, is this a good spine to manipulate or not? 
um, you know, it's patient expectations versus fear of the manipulation. So if someone comes in and is very fearful or has had a bad experience with manipulation in the past, you know, that's that's somebody who I'm going to be extremely cautious with. And, and if, especially if there's fear combined with anxiety and post-traumatic stress, and maybe there's some central sensitization mixed in. I mean, those are the patients that you do not want to cause any sort of, you know, provocation of their symptoms with manual techniques. And you're going to be a little bit more hands-off and you're going to be more focused on pain science education and a more active uh, exercise-based approach. Now, as you gain the patient's trust, you know, and they start, things start coming down, maybe you can introduce some manual therapy techniques as you go, but initially you're not going to jump right into it. But, you know, then there's other patients that it's much more clear cut. They've had good experience with manipulation in the past. They're sort of looking for that. You know, they tell you, oh, it feels like it's sort of stuck. It feels like this really needs to be, you know, moved. Um, you know, you hear those sorts of things. That's that's going to probably be a better person to provide uh, a specific manipulation on, especially if you can find an active range of motion that's limited and it's limited with some resistance and pain that you can then follow up with and, and confirm that active movement mobility deficit with the passive mobility deficits and palpation findings. So, you know, that is going to be, you know, a better spine to manipulate and a better person to, to, to uh, respond favorably to uh, manipulation. It's interesting because when you talk about patient expectations, so, so frequently, I believe, and this is maybe just my own bias, but I feel like that gets lost in a lot of the research, which speaks mostly to the delivery of an intervention, the effectiveness of that intervention. But these interventions are just a small component of the patient's experience within physical therapy. And so what they come in with and what they expect and what they want plays such a role in their outcome. And I don't know that I've, I've seen a lot of people that have come to me specifically asking for hands-on treatment or manual therapy or manipulations. And in the people that have been appropriate for it, I haven't had a bad outcome. I think one time I've had somebody come into me, seemed appropriate and just didn't respond as well as I wanted him to. But patient expectations oftentimes will guide what you're doing. If assuming it's appropriate, it's not facilitating dependence, all those types of things. It's interesting to me though, we speak to all these clinical prediction rules kind of the the hallmark clinical prediction rule when it comes to low back pain, the the way they did that study, they found the, the symptomatic side, if there was one, and they manipulated that, and they looked for a cavitation. And if they didn't get one, they, they th- did the thrust again. So they did up to two thrusts on that side. If they didn't get it, they went to the other side and did two thrusts. And so in that study, they had some people that got four thrusts versus some people that might be got one. And so in my head, that's creating variability from a research perspective that then gets translated to the the clinical setting. I'm wondering, maybe it's based on this study or maybe it's based on other studies. What do you feel like is maybe some of the disconnect or the biggest disconnects between what we see in the research and how it guides maybe what we do in the clinic? Yeah, well, you know, I think looking specifically at that protocol that was was done, and it was really kind of that whole series of studies that started with Tim Flynn's study to develop the rule, and then John Child's study where he validated the rule, and then Josh Cleveland did the multi-site study that kind of compared a supine versus a sideline manipulation. But they all kind of use that same basic uh, clinical reasoning that, you know, if they if you fit the clinical prediction rule and they would manipulate 
the more uh, symptomatic side. And if, if they didn't get a cavitation, they'd flip them over and do the other side. And I just feel like we can do better than that from a clinical reasoning standpoint and, and to try to make the decision as to what the better technique would be and what which side we should be focusing our forces because it's all about you know where do you want to focus the focus forces where do you want to what what do you need to target and i think the the thing that's probably the most reliable um is to really look at the active movements especially if the active movements are linked to functional limitations so you know if the patient says to me and you know it's all about listening to the patient so if the patient comes in and says you know, I really, my back really hurts when I roll over in bed in the morning, you know, just getting out of, rolling over and getting up out of bed really is a thing that really is, is painful. And it, and it's kind of on this, this left side when I, when I, my legs roll over to the right side. And so when I hear that, I'm thinking, well, you know, I need to look at this patient's active trunk rotation, you know, so I'll put them in hook line, look at the active trunk rotation. And if, if they are, you know, limited, say in, right rotation and they're having, they feel the pain and tension on the right side of the, of the lumbar spine. You know, I'm going to go a little deeper and sort of look at those, uh, do some palpation, see where they're guarded, see where there's li limited mobility in that right side. And then I'm going to do a technique to restore right rotation. You know, I, I don't know why it has to be any more complicated than that or why, you know, why we wouldn't use that level of clinical reasoning. So you see something that, you know, you see right rotation limited, let's do a technique that's going to restore right rotation. You know, like if somebody came in with tight hamstrings, we're not going to force their knee into flexion, you know, aren't we going to bring it up into extension and stretch their hamstrings? So why, why should the spine be any different? So to me, it's, it's you, you know, you go back, you, you, you look at functional limitations, you see how that relates to active movement, and then you follow that up with further palpation and passive mobility assessment, and you're ultimately going to treat the patient's impairments. And if you treat their impairments, I think you're going to have better outcomes. And to treat the impairments effectively, I think we need to try to be specific with what we do. So, you know, that's kind of, I think, what I do in the clinic every day, and I think a lot of people are, but yet, you know, we've kind of got this pressure to be evidence-based and we see the evidence shows that, well, maybe it doesn't matter. So, so then we just kind of start, we start throwing out the baby with the bathwater in terms of how we're going about examining our patients. And I, I think it's a mistake to do that. I would completely agree. As we start to think about being evidence-based, that doesn't mean research only, you know, research is one third of evidence-based practice and patient values and our own experiences and our, our expertise are those other two thirds. And so, your point's really well taken is that, you know, it's not as complicated as it needs to be, but it could be as targeted based on the specific presentation, which kind of leads me into my next thought. When we think about manipulation, there's a lot of targeted, specific, biomechanical kind of approaches to manipulation. And then there's also been more recent studies kind of saying we can manipulate uh, an adjacent segment and actually get a similar response. And so people will manipulate the thoracic spine for the, for neck pain, and people will maybe manipulate the hip for people with low back pain or vice versa. You know, for me, I, I'm, I was trained to kind of uh, mobilize or manipulate as needed to try to reduce the person's comparable sign. So the, the specificity of the technique was maybe less relevant than management of symptoms and, and impairments. I'm not necessarily in the camp of manipulation anywhere leads to improvement everywhere. And so what are your thoughts? And maybe this kind of dovetails what you already said a little bit, but what are your thoughts on maybe a local 
lumbopelvic technique compared to maybe more of that regional manipulation for people with that acute or maybe even persistent low back pain? Yeah, well, I think it doesn't necessarily have to be either or, but we have to have the skill set in order to be specific when we need to be specific. So, um, you know, I certainly, I do a ton of thoracic manipulations for patients coming in with neck pain or low back pain or shoulder pain, because I know that the neurophysiological effects are going to, you know, be widespread with those, with thoracic manipulations. And, and oftentimes that is an area where people are really stiff and guarded. And if you can free that up, they're going to feel better, move better. And, you know, it's going to kind of help them really throughout their spine. So, um, you know, I think it is important to understand those neurophysiological effects that happen with that regional interdependence uh, type of approach or, um, and, 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 and utilize that. It's, it's sort of liberating to know that we can do that. But I also think that there's more to it than that. There's, there's certainly situations where, you know, you may do a, a lumbar manipulation, whether you're trying to be general or specific, but, you know, and you have to have that key, you know, pre-manipulation and post-manipulation tests that you're going to do. So like to use my earlier example, if I look at lower trunk rotation and I see that limitation and I do a, say it's right rotation and I do a right rotation manipulation, I go back and retest. And if they're no better, I need to go back and and do something else, right? I need to either take that same technique and modify it or try a different technique. But regardless, I need to know, I need to be able to kind of based on that re-examination, I need to modify what it is that I am doing. And if all we're going to teach our students is are these general techniques, what do they do next? You know, they're just kind of, you're sort of, you've used all the, you've used your one tool in the toolbox and, um, and, and they haven't had the training then uh, and they don't know what they don't know in order to kind of take it a step further to get more specific when they need to. So I think, you know, I think the answer is, we need to kind of do all of it and we need to kind of understand, you know, you know what the benefits are. And, and there certainly are regional neurophysiological effects that are benefits, but there's also situations where you need to get more specific in order to have that good uh, restoration of range of motion and function, uh, or else you're going to be sending the patient out the door without making that improvement within the treatment session, which we know there's good evidence that shows if you can make improvements within a treatment session, it's going to translate into subsequent treatment sessions and overall have better outcomes. So, so th- I think that is the key really is, is to kind of have those key findings that you go back to. And in those key findings, oftentimes are active movement um, types of uh, assessments that we're looking at. And you spoke to a lot of the things that maybe hone us into what would make me think manipulation would be appropriate or how would I make sure I'm, I'm testing the right things to make sure something's appropriate for manipulation. And then we also talk about the indications for manipulation. We practice manipulations a ton in PT school, continuing education courses, residency fellowship. And so we spend a lot of time doing the psychomotor task for manipulation and mobilization. But when it comes to the people we shouldn't be performing these tests on or these techniques on, really all we talk about is some of the precautions and maybe more of the contraindications. I feel like we all know some of these more overt contraindications, fracture, you know, known cancer in the area, known instability. Obviously, some red flags for some people are not red flags for others, but I feel like there's always a, a gut feeling for me when I say, you know, this is a good person to, to do a thrust technique on versus that's not a good person to do a thrust technique on. What are some of the things that make your gut kind of stand out and say, you know what, 
this person's maybe better for exercise. This person's maybe better for mobilization. I know you kind of spoke to, you know, the fear avoidance and maybe some of the more pain mechanistic kind of components to your decision-making, but what are some things that make you say, you know, I'm just going to hold off on this for today? Yeah, I think it's um, a lot of it does have to do with how the patient is presenting themselves. You know, if they're coming in and they're very, uh, emotional, very fearful, very anxious. To me, those are, you know, signs that I, I need to kind of be very cautious with what I'm doing from a manual therapy standpoint, because I don't want them to, you know, I don't want to provoke uh, their symptoms, you know, by something I'm doing from a manual therapy perspective. So, uh, and, and also looking for signs of central sensitization. And, and even, I guess, to a certain degree, if, if somebody has a really hot neurogenic pain, you know, there's probably it's not that I have to be hands off with those folks, but I'm, I'm going to try probably err on the side of caution in terms of how vigorous I am with, with manipulation. You know, so those, those would all be, you know, fear, anxiety, depression, things of that nature would be some of the key things that I would sort of back off on the hands-on and be a little bit more hands-off with, with those patients. But hopefully, you know, if you can work with the patient and gain their trust and, and, you know, and then you see that there are indications for, for manual therapy as you go, you know, through the subsequent episode of care, you might be able to then work your way in there and still do some, some level of manual therapy or manipulation with those patients. But uh, initially if they're presenting as very fearful, very anxious, I think you have to be very cautious. I would add on top of that. I think going back to that, that patient that I didn't have a good outcome with, it was actually during fellowship training um, this person was referred to me from a different state and came specifically for the manipulation and had all the indications that it would make sense. And the thing that didn't stand out in my gut was that this person was actually dependent on manipulation and not just thinking that it could help, but it, it needed to help. And I didn't take that as a flag in my head because he traveled so much to get there and all those types of things, but that just didn't lead to a good outcome. But those are some variables that you can't really teach every single time in the clinic. So it really does come back to a specific patient-centric evaluation, clinical decision-making that incorporates you know, your own experiences and then the evidence as it exists. So it always does depend. And that's my favorite phrase, but it's also one of the things that's making decision-making challenging from a, a widespread perspective, you know? So then when I think back to your title, you know, uh, lumbar pelvic thrust manipulation, does the technique matter? In my head, my answer is always, well, probably, but it depends. If you had to talk about some of the take-home points on what matters the most when it does matter, or if it doesn't matter, what would those be? Well, the first and most important is that you take the time to listen to your patient and really try to understand, you know, uh, what their needs are, why they're coming to you, what their expectations are, and also what, what they're fearful of. Um, and so if you can come to that sort of understanding and make that connection with the patient, I think you're, you know, you're much further down the track in terms of, you know, having a good outcome and doing the best you can for that individual patient in front of you. But once we kind of get past that and we start looking at the impairments, I really think that, Finding those active movements that are that are limited. So we're looking for manipulation. We want to find, you know, mobility deficits, and it, it's the best way to measure that is with active range of motion. And if we can find active range of motion that's limited, painful, and there's some level of resistance to that movement, and we can then further isolate it 
with our palpation and passive vertebral motion testing, then I think the technique does matter because we want to do something specific to restore that movement that they're worried about that, that is causing their functional deficit. And so again, kind of clustering our findings is going to be helpful, you know, clustering the active movement with, with the patient's history, with the palpation. And once we can cluster those findings and come up with a good clinical decision, then we should be able to go forward with the manipulation. And then we go back to that that key finding, which is oftentimes active range of motion, and see if we made a change, see if now they're moving more comfortably, move, moving further into the range of motion. And if we can do that within a treatment session, we're more likely to have a better outcome going forward uh, as we continue to progress this patient. And obviously, we're going to pr- uh, integrate this with specific exercises and, and education. And it's really the education, the overall management of the patient that we continue to try to strive to get better at as we continue to practice. So I guess those would be my main take-home messages that you know we need to continue to strive to be better clinical decision makers. We need to you know incorporate the evidence into what we do, but yet let's not throw out what we know is, is good and useful in terms of our uh, clinical decision-making processes. Every time I, I have these conversations, it's always kind of eye-opening to me how easy it is to get stuck in the research, but hard to kind of apply the clinical reasoning process to it and do it well. And so I really do appreciate you kind of putting out this presentation and, and Dr. Zlonaman and McDavid to put it together, because I really do think kind of understanding the reasoning process behind what we're doing and why is just as important, if not more so, than knowing how to do the psychomotor tasks. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat about this. Obviously, you wrote the book about it, so you know a fair amount about it. So I really appreciate you uh, taking time out of your day to chat about this. So Great. Well, thank you uh, for the opportunity. I think this is an important topic, and I appreciate AMP. You're providing these kind of opportunities and forums in order to discuss these important parts of our clinical practice now and into the future. Sure. And I look forward to having these conversations again. Thank you very much. This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, AAOMPT. The views and opinions expressed on the AOMPT podcast are those of the interviewers and interviewees and do not represent the official position of AOMPT. The information presented should not be used as personal health care or clinical practice advice. If you need to find an expert orthopedic physical therapist near you, then check out the Find a Fellow feature under the Public Resources tab at www.aaompt.org, which you can find in the show notes.